This conference will now be recorded. It is recorded now. Perfect. So, with that in mind, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Corbono, the website where you can find most of those po podcasts or talks. Um, this is the website, corbono.com. And if you go there, I do recommend you start with the Catholic Foundation Library. It's a series of talks that will give you a good understanding of what a Catholic faith is and what it means. And then uh, I do encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter. Now, as it, says, as it says in the picture, I don't know if you can read it, but there's no selling, no badgering, no bothering, no annoyance. I send a newsletter only when an episode is released or when a new podcast is starting or when I'm giving a, a, a talk. So if you want to keep up with the talks I'm giving, that's the way to do it. And the reason why I'm doing this is because um, I got hit with a bunch of requests for me to be able to let people know about this talk. And then so I had to do is copy the PDFs and people emails. And this is the way to do it. This is a simple way. I don't sell names. I don't know anything. There's no money into this for me whatsoever. And it's very, very uh, low key. But if you want to keep um, updated about the talks that I give in the podcast that I do, this is the way to, to do it. Very simple. Your name, whatever the name you want, and your email. And that's, all, that's the only two bits of information I have uh, that I keep from people. Okay, and um, yeah, maybe I should have. All right, uh, just to let you know, um, this is basically completely spreading without me doing anything about it. I don't advertise, I don't push, I don't sell, I, nothing. This is happening because one person tells another person who tells another person. So this is one podcast, and I have about eight of those, so it'll give you a sense of where this is going. So it's small but it's 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 running on its own and um the other interesting thing is that uh, the 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 geographic reach of this of these stocks they're um all over the world and people are getting to know what those stocks are about and getting the value of them uh straight up so just to kind of encourage you to take a look at them and then see if there's something that will be appealing podcast is kind of a little ironic because my my talks are about um an hour and a half long so just be forewarned they get they go deep into the faith and they're not small all right having said all that and i don't know how i'm going to do this because this thing is in the way so bear with me this is new to me as well let me see okay perfect uh, that's beautiful all right so now i'd like you to stand up and we begin <clears throat> in the name of the father of the son of the holy spirit amen O oh my God, I offer thee all my actions of this day for the intentions and for the glory of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. I desire to sanctify every beat in my heart, my every thought, my simplest works, my uniting, by uniting them to its infinite merits. And I wish to make reparation for my sins by casting them into the furnace of its merciful love. O oh my God, I ask of thee for myself, for those whom I hold dear, the grace to fulfill perfectly thy holy will, to accept for love of thee the joys and sorrows of this passing life, so that we may one day be united together in heaven for all eternity. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have given us a model of life in the holy family of Nazareth. Help us, a loving Father, to make our family another Nazareth where love, peace, and joy reign. May it be deeply contemplative, intensely Eucharistic, and vibrant with joy. 
Help us to stay together in joy and sorrow through family prayer. Teach us to see Jesus and the members of our family, especially in their distressing disguise. May the Eucharistic heart of Jesus make our hearts meek and humble like his and help us to carry out our family duties in a holy way. May we love one another as God loves each one of us more and more each day and forgive each other's, each other's faults as you forgive our sins. Help us, loving Father, to take whatever you give and to give whatever you take with a big smile. Help us, Holy Father, to make our families one heart, full of love, in the heart of Jesus through Mary. Immaculate Heart of Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Holy Guardian Angels, be always with us. Guide and protect us. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. All right. The agenda tonight. We're going to start with some hard data on happiness. What is happiness and how to be happy? And I mean hard data as in data that has been collected over 84 years. Then we're going to talk about the except, exceptional 7%, the exceptional 7% couples who are married and who are happy. Then we're going to talk about pattern of marriages, of marriage from worst to best. And then tonight we're going to cover deadly marriages, the sort of things we all want to avoid, but they're out there. And then we'll end with some Q&A. Next week, we'll take it from what we call conventional marriage all the way to the best marriages. And in the process, you're going to learn some patterns about marriage. You're going to learn the fundamental principles that make a marriage happy. We're going to start with this study. The Harvard Study of Adult Development, which began in Boston in 1938. So what they did is that they took 268 students who were attending Harvard, all men. And then 134 of those came from rich families, family well-to-do who could pay the, the, the tuition and let their kids go to Harvard. And then the other half came from families that were sort of uh, more um, uh, middle class. And so the students had to take on jobs and work to get through their degree. That was then, so this is basically, and then, oh yeah, 13% came from immigrant families. Back then, the United States, uh, coming from uh, being an immigrant family, had a very powerful negative stigma associated with it. It wasn't seen uh, with uh, keen eyes. All right, that was then paired with 456 kids who came from uh, poor families in Boston. And then 60% uh, of them, 273, had at least one immigrant parent. But these 456 kids, by the way, had managed to avoid the usual traps of poverty, drugs, uh, gangs, and the sort. So there were kids who were going to school with families who were well-functioning and trying to advance themselves. And then 60% of them, like I said, had at least one immigrant parent, which then coupled to their poverty, made the stigma even stronger. And, um, and, and so those 724 boys were put together 
1938 into one study. Purpose was how can we measure happiness? And that study tracked them all the way from 1938 till today, and it's still ongoing. I just want to let that sit with all of you. This is a period of 83 or 84 years in that period. They're tracking the 724 original boys, then their wives, their male and female descendants, children, grandchildren. Questionnaires and observations and callings and asking them questions for all that period. That book that you see here, The Good Life, is a summary of the findings of that study. It is unique in its quality, longevity. The question is, what makes people happy? What makes them happy? The question isn't, let's define philosophically happiness. Pragmatically, what make people happy? They started with people who came from different economic backgrounds different um, family structure, wanting to see where do we end. So where do we end? Some of them became um, masons, builders. Others, doctors. Uh, sorry, Phil. Lawyers. And um, workers. So they all took on positions, right? Financially different, different prestige, different influence. Some got into addiction. Some suffered from schizophrenia. And then some climbed the ladder all the way to the top, from being poor, to becoming very rich, to becoming politically influential, while others took the journey in a different, in the opposite direction. 84% of these people are still in the study today. And there were thousands of questions that were fielded over the years, not just to them, but to their spouses, to their children. And there were hundreds of measurements taken over all that period. They, the, the question they were trying to figure out is that as these people aged, what made them healthy and happy? So in this context, happiness isn't just this one moment in time. You graduated, you're happy. You got a car, you're happy. Not that kind of happiness, but that abiding sense of happiness. What brought that about? Especially as these people aged. For you, youngsters, the one thing that you don't yet realize right now, because very few of you are actually sitting down and interacting with older people, is that as you age, the number one thing you're going to have to face is solitude, being alone. So what make people happy as they age? 
And this summary comes from a Wall Street Journal article. The, the two current directors of the research wrote um, about, I would say, four weeks ago. Don't get us wrong. These things, climbing the career ladder, exercising, eating healthy, don't get us wrong. These things matter. They obviously matter. If anybody tells you that you should you know, work hard or exercise or not eat healthy, run away from them. You, those are important things, by all means. But one thing, one thing, this is remarkable. One thing continuously demonstrates its broad and enduring importance as far as happiness is concerned. One thing. Can you guess? Happy marriage. No. No. Not marriage. Not faith. Sorry? Love. People on the call, please mute yourselves. We're hearing you. Not, not love. They'll, they'll, they'll take care of it. They'll mute it. No, no, no. They're, they're, it's the people. Can you mute it? Okay, great. Thank you. We have a savior here. Okay, here it is. This is go to Can you mute everybody? Okay, but there's somebody still. We have to scroll. Here we go. This is this guy also. I'm just going to mute them for now, just in case we need to sound later. Perfect. Thank you. Like Thank you. Nope. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So part of the happiness, you need somebody you know sound system. Okay. No, not marriage, not faith, not any of those things. Remember, we're talking about the natural structure of happiness here, right? What is the one thing that matters? Yes. Purpose. No. Comfort, no. Yes. That's it. Good, Emily. None of these matters. The one thing, if I can make this to work, is good relationships. Good relationships. That has been shown with hard data to be the one thing the one enduring thing that matters for your happiness. In fact, in that same article, they told us that recently they followed a subset of these people and called them every day about five times a day. These are now people in their 80s. So they have ailments. Their health is not perfect. And they call them every day. And the one thing they found out is that the, the, the level of pain 
that they're going through go down, go down when they share a moment with somebody, when they get a hug, when someone comes and sits with them and talks to them and have this moment of companionship, pain goes down. Relationship. This is the one enduring fact that this study has found over a period of 84 years, and it's born by other study like it as well. Relationships. So, relationships. Relationships is with mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and children and spouse and extended family and friends and colleagues and community. And so right now, right now, you can gauge, you can gauge the level of happiness you're going to end up with in by your ability to relate to all these people. If, I'm going to use a Lebanese expression that was very dear to our dear father Nabil in English. He used to tell us, Listen good. That is straight up from Lebanese, smaunih, which is mean take note. Take note. If right now you are unable to reach out to someone with whom you have a difficult relationship, if right now when you have a difficult relationship with someone, your answer is to cut back, stop talking to them, stonewall them. You're setting yourself up for misery. So, you want to be happy in marriage? Start working on the way you, re you relate to people. Make it be your priority number one above everything else. And, you know, it's Lent. This is Lent. So, make note to self. If, right now, there is a person, one person, in your family, with whom you're not talking, that is your Lent. Make it happen. Go talk to them. All right. So now we have to be aware of the following habit-forming behaviors, which are set against good relationships. All of us, all of us run into this. I'm going to plug my ears live my own little world, listen to my own music, do my own thing, listen to podcasts about love, and ignore everything around me. What, what, are you, what, what habit do you think you're forming right now? In terms of virtues and vices, it's the vice of um, self-centeredness. 
it's a lack of charity. Because our good Lord would be sending you people to exercise charity and you can't hear. You know, I would I've loved always to sort of uh, have a scene where our Lord is speaking to the 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 the, the, the people, the crowd, and then all of them pick up those things and plug their ears. As he says, if you have ear, then you should hear. This is a habit forming that over the long range for your own self will lead you to unhappiness because you're isolating yourself. Be careful with your phone. Your phone is a mirror of yourself. Mirror, mirror in the wall. Tell me who is the most selfish of all. So your phone is doing. I hate those phones. Honestly, I do. As soon as I retire, I'm getting rid of my phone, getting one of those flip-top phones, and you can call. That's it. I was actually very uh, warmed because I saw a youngster. She's this girl who started this movement to get rid of cell phones. She got rid of hers, and she, it's a call to action. Get rid of your cell phone. If you can imagine the number of situations and occasions where you could have talked to somebody, formed a relationship, connected with someone, and you were too busy on your phone. Um, these behaviors, look in your life during Lent and ask yourself this question, which of my behavior is leading me to be more by myself, more isolated, less connected? And those are the ones you need to work on. That's, that is whether you're getting married or not. That's just as a principle for your own self. All right. Now, the second source of material I'm going to use for these first two talks is coming from this book called The Exceptional 7%. And this is a book that is based on research and on experience and on counseling. And that's the book we're going to be using for the rest of this um, talk. So in this book, we're going to start to learn a little bit more about the rules of a good marriage. We're going to talk about how we actually relate to one another in a marriage. We are going to talk about how we connect and stay connected. What are those important aspects of marriage that will lead to a happy marriage and we're going to talk specifically about how those types of things form a marriage and help it to thrive or destroy it um like i said this is a book that is based on data on research and on counseling all right what I like about this, I am by trade, by formation, a software architect. As, as a software architect, I deal with patterns. I deal with framework. And I'm always looking for those. And what I like about this is that he basically, the author provides this. He starts with this peculiar thing where he speaks about an identity strength 
and marital satisfaction. So that's key point number two. Listen good. Marital satisfaction is proportional to identity strength. Who you are and how comfortable you are being who you are. What is identity strength? Starts by who, who you want people to say when you die. What is your mission in life? Why are you here? To the guys, I'm going to skip a few talks and throw that at you right now. Girls are not looking to date Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're not looking to date a guy who is super built. They're looking to date a guy who has a purpose in life. So you're floating like a rudder, they're not interested in you. First thing you need to do, figure out what you want to do and go do it. And that would make you a man. All right. So the next thing he does is that he basically structure marriages or pattern of marriages from, in terms of happiness or identity, strength, marital satisfaction, from extremely low, going through moderate, and then high moderate and high, and finally the extremely high. Under extremely low, he speaks of impoverished marriages. And we're gonna describe those. We're gonna go in detail about each one of those in this section. Deadly marriage, shipwreck marriage, and their different types. And this is therefore a way of learning of what not to do. Most of you here, hopefully, will never find yourself here. But that's, that depends at the end of the day on you. Most people fall in the conventional marriage. None of those are truly happy. The exceptional marriages are, are either called partnership marriage, and then the, if you will, the top of the food chain of marriage is the spiritual peer marriage. And those will cover the conventional, and the exceptional will be covered during the next talk. All right, let's go to the impoverished marriage first. Impoverished marriage is called so because it has very low intimacy, very low satisfaction, and very low longevity. And when you hear me say intimacy, do not reduce that to sex. I'm not being prude here. Intimacy is so much richer than sex. Not to say that marital sex is not rich, it has to be. But intimacy is wider than that. That's why they're called impoverished. They basically lack those things. And one more thing, I am not being judgmental. I'm not judging these people who fall into these categories. People are doing the best they can. And many folks come from very difficult backgrounds. You understand? 
And I completely understand that. This is no judgment on anyone. Everyone here is trying to do the best they can. But to those who have the potential of doing better, of moving up that scale, then this is a way for them to find out that you can actually change things. And for those of you who have not yet started, it sort of makes you, or you just barely started being married, it maybe give you a few things to think about and then change in the way you approach marriage. And to those who've been in marriage for, for a long time, guess what? You can start changing today. The conventional marriage is really about a man and a woman trying to find themselves in the world, trying to find who they are with respect to a community. Typically, they are, all, they are connected to a community, to a church, to a group. If they're on the traditional, conventional, or a, a conservative side, it'll be most likely a church. If they're on the liberal side, it'll be an organization, political, or maybe an NGO or some movement that they connect with. And um, one more time, I'm gonna reiterate what I said in the beginning. I'm talking about the natural marriage, right? Natural marriage means what? It's, so in theology, we distinguish between the natural law and the ecclesial law. The ecclesial law is the law set up by the Catholic Church. The natural law is the law set up by God. Marriage falls under the natural law. It is an institution set up by God from the beginning of time. And therefore, therefore, happiness in marriage is not, is not conditioned on whether someone belongs to the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church or a church. Whether you're Catholic or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist, anyone can attain to happiness, happiness in marriage. Do you understand that? Okay. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because there is, or there could be a tendency among some of us to think that if you are in a relationship or in a marriage that is not working well, that the only thing you need to do is go and then pray. Well, prayer is wonderful, right? Absolutely wonderful, but that's not what is going to fix the marriage. It'll give you perhaps the strength, the courage, the fortitude to go do what you need to do, but marriage is a natural institution. Therefore, there are certain things we need to do ourselves to attain to this happiness. That's the point I'm going to make. So when you hear me later on in this talk or the other one to say prayer is not what's going to make you happy, understand it in the context of this conversation, right? I am not talking about the dark night of the soul. I'm not talking about the spirituality of St. Teresa. I'm not talking about any of the supernatural happiness that comes from our relationship with God. I'm talking about marital happiness, which God ordained for all mankind. And you have questions about that. I can give you, I can quote our Lord. I can quote you know, the documents of, of the Catholic Church about marriage that confirm that point I just made. God willed for people to be happy in marriage. All right. The exceptional marriage have, number one, a marital imperative. A marital imperative 
is what defines their marriage. It's a statement that says, this is why we're together. Most people who get into marriage do not think about a marital imperative. It doesn't even come to mind. Second, personal competence. These people are competent in every aspect of their marital life. And that is so important for intimacy. Third, they have a level of intimacy that conventional marriage can never attain to. And then four, actualization. Now, actualization is a psychological term to say that you are, you've managed to be who you want to be. Right? If you say, I want to be, let's say somebody in a profession says, I want to be a good teacher, and eventually people recognize him as being a good teacher, well, he actualized his desire to be a good teacher. That's what actualization means, right? So he's a psychologist. I'm following some of his terminology. All right. Let's talk about deadly marriages. It starts with people who come from a background that have been so messed up that reality is so overwhelming or uninteresting, right? Um, what do I mean by reality being overwhelming? It means that there is the sense of constant end of the world uh, impression. Everything is falling apart. The world is a terrible place to live in. And we can't, I can't, I can't handle it. It's too much. And uninteresting is that I can't derive, I cannot derive any sense of happiness from reality around me. And therefore, I'm just going to pull back from it. And those people are living in very difficult situations. So then they go through the self-destructive attempt to escape reality. Because... When you try, the, the only way, the only way you could escape reality is by self-destroying yourself. There is no other way. So the chaotic, and then there are two brands for this, chaotic and codependent. So let's talk about the chaotic marriage first. All right. Under this heading, these people are drinking buddies. Because drinking um, is a way to escape reality. And by the way, in case you don't know that, now you're going to know, and that will make you responsible, right? Getting drunk is a grave matter. And for Catholics, getting drunk is a mortal sin. And what are you trying to do when you get drunk? You're, you're exhibiting behaviors that lead here. You're trying to escape reality. Um, they are basically folks who become buddies in that escape. They find themselves both trying to escape and are kind of connect. But there's really no fundamental um, 
relationship between them. It is because they want to escape this reality, they kind of get together with drinking, with sex, and, you know, they become each other punching bags. Um, and needless to say, right, it leads to substance abuse and the rest of it. I mean, honestly, the only way to have a worse marriage is to marry a serial killer. Right? There are marriages like that out there. And again, the reason why these people end in there is not because they decided to choose this. It's because they lived in an environment. They come from divorced families. They are abused. The, there is uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse going on in their own families. And there is no way out. There is no way out. One of the worst things that happened here in the United States since the 60s is to break up with the extended family. In other parts of the world where if parents are being, getting messed up, the uncles, the aunts, the brothers, the sisters take the kids away. The breakup of the extended family in the United States make that almost impossible. All right. That's the good news. Which means what? Which means if somehow, by some miracle, these people can get themselves into therapy, can start talking to someone, they can start moving up. And typically, when they start moving up, it ends in divorce because they were never meant to be together in the first place. Right? Okay. Codependent marriage. This is a different, has a different flavor than the um, chaotic marriage. In codependency, what you have is a long marriage. It's stable, but it's miserable. Why? You start with a guy who's kind of, kind of nuts. He's a nutty guy, right? And he's always in a constant life or death drama. Like, he, he drives recklessly, he drinks recklessly, he does everything recklessly. And then what happens? He stumbles upon a gal who has a long list of personal problems. But she realizes that she cannot solve her problems, so she decides she's going to save him, who cannot be saved in the situation that he's in. So then hopefully when he's saved, he will then save her, fix her problems. You can, just by looking at this, you know this is doomed. This is doomed, right? So here's tip number two for dating. If you're hoping to date someone who's going to save you from yourself, don't. It doesn't work. Laura Schlesinger, Dr. Laura Schlesinger had usually had that saying where she would say to guys, you could save a damsel in distress from a dragon, but you cannot save a damsel in distress from herself. Nobody on this 
earth can save you from yourself. So then they get into this relationship, the two of them, and um, it is long and it is miserable. And but but they endure, they endure. All right, let's talk about a shipwreck marriage now. It's the other side of the impoverished equation. A shipwreck marriage, to begin with, is a breath of fresh air compared to deadly marriages. Still not good, but you've sort of moved away from violence, from abuse, from a situation that is constantly chaotic and about to explode. People in a shipwreck marriage are focused on the ingredients that they need to be able to live. So that's different, that's better. People in the chaotic marriage are only focused on escaping reality. Here, people are not trying to escape reality. They're focusing on reality, but they're really focused on essentially getting the goods they need. And it's called shipwreck because they think of their marriage as that rudder on a chaotic sea. So they still consider the world around them to be um, toxic, to be almost uninhabitable. They live in a constant state of siege. Everything around them is bad and getting worse. Which, which, by the way, is absolutely not supported by the data. Okay? And um, I can say that because a guy my age in the 19th century would be dead. I wouldn't be alive. Because they're focused on the material well-being of their marriage, they never know when enough is enough. They never know when they have to stop working. They never know when they have to stop amassing money. Just the, they just keep at it, no matter what. That marriage is founded on functionality. Paying the bills, maintaining the house, raising the children, doing the stuff. They're not, it's not focused on themselves. It's not focused on the couple. It's focused on the things to do. It is not focused on being, it is focused on doing. And there is no doing that will make you happy. It is the being that makes you happy. That's why we say being in love, not doing love, right? Eventually, it deteriorates into brother and sister, meaning there is no sexual relationship anymore. They're just there together to maintain the ship or the rudder, to let it function, and everything is cool. They don't last more than 10 years. Uh, the reason being that after 10 years of doing this, they reach a certain level where it doesn't look like the word is as shipwrecked as it used to be, and then suddenly the priority change and then the marriage goes away. Okay. Let's talk now about the materialistic marriage, which is a very variation of shipwreck. A materialistic marriage is essentially a marriage focused on material possession, solely material possession. 
And in a materialistic marriage, the couple prides themselves in how much they're able to bring in and how much they're able to save. Remember, these people live in a state of siege. So spending is not normally part of the equation. The guy in a materialistic marriage has a very high sense of esteem. He thinks of himself as someone very important. He is proud of how much money he's bringing in. He's also proud of his reputation. So we're not talking of, of people here who are junkies. We're talking about people who hold very respectable professions. You understand? As I said, he is very proud of the importance he has in the world, in his profession. People recognize him, even in the church. That is something that really matters to him. And uh, what they think of him is very important. Unfortunately, well, he it's very important for him. People think of him as being a great guy. So what they think of him matters. Why? Because he's basically hiding his insecurities. And he's the kind of guy that everyone likes. He's out there. He's smiling. He has good presence, he's extroverted, he does stuff. Everybody likes, but he has no friends. What do I mean by has no friends? Doesn't mean he doesn't have buddies. He has no men in his life with whom he can be intimate. What is that intimacy I'm talking about? Being vulnerable, sharing with another man, his difficulties, the things he's going through, talking about them and figuring out ways to move forward or sharing what, where he is in his life and how he can actually improve. He has no one like this. He doesn't have a real friend. He tends to be neglectful of his children and even abusive, whether physically abusive or emotionally abusive. And emotional abuse doesn't mean he has to demean, degrade, insult his kids. It simply means he's not able to give his kids the emotional attention they expect from their father. Um, I've always told my children that the reason why a lot of girls end up dating guys that are not good for them or end up dating guys too early, because when my kids turned you know, 15 or 16, they start talking about dating. My question to them was always the same. Are you ready to be married? Dating is the mechanism by which you get married. Are you ready to be married? And the answer was no. Because they're smart kids, thanks to their mother. And then I would say, well, then no dating. And that would be the end of it. 
The reason why a lot of girls end up dating is because they're not receiving the emotional attention they require, they need from their father. A man thinks my job in life is bring money, save money, take care of stuff, and I'm done. Well, no, you're not. So that's what we mean by abuse. It's when you don't give your children what they need. And it depends from child to child. Some need more, some need less. He can be very jealous and angry and very abusive with his wife. Why? Because he's got insecurities he doesn't know how to deal with, and that's what he ends up with. That's the situation you end up with in that kind of shipwrecked materialistic marriage. All right, let's talk about the, the, the woman. The woman in such marriage focuses on the children. They become the locus of her attention, the kids. So in a profound sense, she's neglecting her husband, who should be the most important person in her life. The kids become more important. And we see that consistently. She's in a situation where she cannot provide for herself, so she really lives in a situation of quite desperation. She can't provide for herself. She's unhappy in this marriage. She doesn't know how to get out. She focuses on the kids. And that typically lasts 10 years. She can put up with that situation for 10 years. 10 years later, she either finds an alternative way of getting money or making money, or she finds a lover, one or the other. And as a result, the marriage doesn't survive. Okay. So, impoverished marriages, we talked about the shipwreck marriage, materialistic, and now we're going to talk about safety marriage. A safety marriage starts with a woman who doesn't need much, or that's how she thinks. She needs only very little. And she finds a quiet man who holds a position and is able to bring in or cover for her needs. So they get married. And then what they're looking for is safety. There are no arguments. You know, um, if you ever come to my house, I mean, people who came to my house, it's really funny, when I have people come to my house who come from sort of who are themselves very quiet, and they sit with us at table, we're like a nuclear reactor. All right? Everything is debated, everything is talked about, everything is argued loudly. That's how we are. And I'm personally very proud of it. I, I, I am very proud of this. Okay. But there were friends of ours or people I knew who never argued. And on the, from the outset, it looks like a good thing. These are quiet people, calm people. Everybody speaks politely. There's never an argument. 
Now, I am not advocating that everybody needs to be exuberant and loud and energetic. What I'm talking about is that there is never an argument. It means that people are putting a lid on it. And you can put a lid on it only for a certain time. After, after which it comes back and haunts you. So just thinking about safety, thinking about being quiet is a way to short circuit or to destroy intimacy and relationships. No conflict. No conflict. It's interesting. Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen this uh, clip between Jordan Peterson and uh, I think a Canadian uh, anchor woman. How many of you have seen that? Okay, if you haven't seen it and you don't know what I'm talking about, Jordan Peterson is a professor of psychology in Canada. And uh, when Canada passed this law where if somebody asks you to use pronouns, you have to use those pronouns. And otherwise you pay fee or you go to jail. He then refused and said, I'm not gonna do that. And that essentially sets him on an international scene. And he was eventually invited to speak with an anchor woman. And uh, he got talking about offend, of being offensive, being offensive. And she was asking him, why do you want to offend these people by not using their pronouns? And he answered back by saying, well, there is no way that you're gonna have a really good conversation about any subject without taking the risk of offending somebody. In fact, he pointed out to her that you just took that risk of offending me by asking me these questions, which you need to do. The reason I'm bringing this here is this. If you are right now as an individual, when you're with your friends or your circle, whenever there is a topic that comes that is uncomfortable, if you tend to shut it off instead of engaging, you're going here. That's what you're looking for. If you shut it off, as soon as something comes up and it is, it's gonna create a conflict, it is uncomfortable, you shut it off, you distance yourself, you pull away, you're looking for this. Safety marriage, that's what you want. What are you lacking when you do that? Which virtue are you lacking when you do that? Principally, the virtue of fortitude. Courage. You've got to be able to stand up and then say what you have to say. Now, it doesn't mean you have to insult people or demean them or attack them, but you have to say what you have to say. I can give you examples. At my work, many of my colleagues like to swear. My managers and people I know were in, in the habit of using foul language, including the name of our Lord in vain. In any of those circumstances, I made it very clear, then I don't abide by these words, and I ask them to simply not use them in my presence. 
And they did. And when they would forget, I would remind them. Can you do that? Now, as Catholics, I hope all of you, when you go to restaurants, you do the sign of the cross and you say your prayers. If not, why not? If somebody engages you about your faith, are you able to give a good defense? If not, why not? What do you lack? Knowledge? Competence? If you have friends and you are unable to talk about some of your own weaknesses, share that with them and ask for advice with humility but with courage. How could you hope to have true and abiding intimacy with someone? How? Do you start to see how when we're talking about happy marriage, we're engaging our virtues, the natural virtues. Without them, there cannot be a happy marriage. That's why this identity strength is so connected with marital satisfaction. By the way, I could take the stock that I'm giving you right now and then translate it over to call to the priesthood and it would apply. And you all know that. We all want what? Priests who are happy to be priests, who know why they are priests, who showcase the love of God, don't you? How many of you want a priest who, when you come to say hi to him, kind of backtracks and go hide in the corner? So if you're demanding this of your priest and you demand it of it like this, instantly, you can tell right away, why aren't you demanding the same thing of yourselves? Do you know that, well, some of you have heard me say that. What is the sin that is foremost on the lips of our Lord in the Gospels? Raise your hand if you know. Hanan, put it down. Hypocrites. Hypocrites is on the lips of our Lord more than any other sins. Identity strength is precisely the kind of virtue that pulls you out of hypocrisy. Because you're going to be what you're going to say, and you're going to say who you're going to be. You're true. So seeking a relationship with complete safety, no conflict, is another way of running from reality. Stress-free, right? So safety, no conflict, stress-free. You know where you find that? You know where you, where you can find a situation that is safe? Sorry about that. 
I think a fridge decided to intervene. Safe, without conflict, and stress-free. Cemetery. When you visit the cemetery, it is safe. No one is going to attack you. There is no conflict, because if you speak to the dead, they don't answer back. And it's completely stress-free. I personally love having picnics in a cemetery. You know, pardon? I know, because you would not have liked it. So I encourage you, if that's what you're looking for, to go to a cemetery and then pray the rosary for the dead, because they need it. But that's not a way you're going to run a relationship. You're not going to be two tombstones walking around hoping to be happy. Not going to happen. So, these people typically will be connected to a church because this is a relationship that is primarily led by the woman. They connect to a church, but their faith is shallow. They are looking for feel-good spirituality or rigid religiosity. They want the form, they want the structure, they want to hide behind all these things because they make them safe. There's no conflict, it's very clear, and then it's stress-free. I um, The reason I'm spending more time on uh, safety side of this sort of marriage is because it is one of those traps that is very easy to fall into. It's not difficult to fall into that kind of relationship. Because it looks good. This is a respectful couple. They have a good financial situation. They are not the kind of people who are going to make any waves. They're quiet. They're respectable. They go to church. When they're in church, they follow the rules. They have kids. Everybody's polite. Everybody's quiet. They look like an exemplary family. But appearances are not reality. Ten years later, the woman is now satiated with safety and stability. The man gave her what she wanted for ten years. Now she's looking for some passion. She wants more of the marriage. But notice, I'm saying passion. I'm not saying intimacy. Intimacy is more. She wants some action in her life. So then she starts dragging her husband to therapists, to churches, and to group therapy in the hope that one of these things will fix him. It's um, a sort of marriage that will survive the 10 years, because remember, this is a woman who's not adventurous. She's not going to go out and cheat on her husband. 
She's never going to do something like that. So typically the marriage will survive the 10 years and will keep on going. But 10 years later, they go through another wave. The rescue marriage is a combination of materialistic and safety. It is the sort of marriage where you're kind of combining both and um, they basically come from severely neglectful, abusive or deprived families of origin. And again, I don't want you to think when we say neglectful, abusive, or deprived family origins of the worst possible kind of physical abuse. Think of something less than that, but just as impactful. They come from families where the needs of the children were not properly met. Now, the needs of the children may not be 100% met. Parents are not perfect. But overall, by and large, the 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 need was met and if it wasn't met there was a mechanism for the children to express their needs if you are let me put it to you this way if you are or you know someone who comes from a family where children cannot ask questions cannot go to their parents and ask questions that matter to them whether it's about dating or about sex or about any other topic that matter to them. If you come from such families, you're coming from a family where there is neglect and abuse and you have been deprived. I'm saying this so you understand we're not talking about people living in shacks, not having any money, living on drugs. We're talking about families that you can meet day in, day out, all around you. If you are in that situation, going back to good relationships, now is the time to go home, sit your parents down, and then ask them those questions. How come we don't talk about stuff here? Why? This is your right as children. Your parents may not be able to give you the perfect answer. That's okay. But you should be able to have a mechanism by which things can be corrected. Things can be talked about so that healing can begin to happen. Good families are families where there is a mechanism that allow correction for something goes wrong. If your parents had never come to you and say, I'm sorry. If they've never told you, I am sorry. You come from a neglectful family. It's that simple. Now, I'm not saying this to you for you to get angry or mad at your parents, if that's the case. I'm saying this to you for, to, for you to start to realize, hey, wait a minute. There are certain things I need to work on myself so that I don't pass that on to my kids, so I don't replicate the same thing. I end in a relationship where we don't talk about anything, everything's quiet, put the lid on it, and on we go. Okay, here is what one woman said in therapy. I love him, but not like most people mean it. But you know, he doesn't beat me. He doesn't drink too much or sleep around. He makes a good living. What do I have to complain about? 
what she's not seeing is that her acceptance of that kind of tepid, indifferent relationship affects her children. And the community broadly, um, you know, a church, a church, Father Tufi is always reminding us a church is a family. This is your family. This is something he keeps repeating and reminding of this is your family. A church is a place where normally people after mass linger and then talk to each other to take care of each other. If you are in a situation where you go to church, church ends, get up and you leave. What are you doing? Yeah, there was the love of God. Where's the love of neighbor? Where is it? Who are we kidding? Our faith is not Jesus and I relationship. It is a relationship between us and the Holy Trinity, which is a family. And then between us and all the people around us. Do you see how these behaviors of ours affect in a profound way the outcome of our life, whether we're going to end up being happy or not? So, coming to the end of this talk, what we've done right now is covered this sort of section on the left-hand side of impoverished marriages that happen quite a bit. Right? They account for about, I would say, 20% of all marriages fall into this category. The bulk of marriages fall into the conventional one. And then we'll talk about that next uh, next week. So now, a few recommendations to shipwreck marriages and to people who are not yet in a relationship, but who may be coming from situations that make, them, make it very difficult for them to expect much of life. But they don't know what to do. First, expect more from life. What does that mean, to expect more from life? It means you should expect that a person who is with you make you happy they should work on making you happy you should expect that you should expect that from your parents from your siblings from your friends in return you should try and make those around you happy if you are stilted if you are aloof if you are afraid of talking if you're afraid of engaging, you're locking yourself in a tomb. Christ called Lazarus out of that tomb. He's calling all of us out. This is Lent, a great time for us to do the things that make us uncomfortable. Pick one, go after it. You don't know which one to pick? Ask your brothers, ask your sisters, ask your parents. Ask your friends, ask your priest. 
There'll be somebody who will tell you, work on this. Learn to meet your own needs. Guys, I can't tell this enough, especially for the guys. If you do not have a direction in your life, if you're rudderless, if you, are, you don't have a passion, something that you can go after, find one. If you're stuck in gaming, understand that gaming is a siren and she got you. Your interest is there, your passion is there, you get much satisfaction from that activity, but it's killing your ability to have good relationships, authentic relationships with people. Find something real to do, do it. Now, for those who are married, relate to your spouse. What does that mean to relate to your spouse? Well, we're gonna talk more about that next, next time. But start thinking about this. Your spouse is the most important person in your life. Not your kids, not your friends, not your parents, not your in-laws, your spouse, your wife, your husband. No one is more important. No one should be more important. Not your work, not your job. And remember guys, I'm gonna remind you again, I'm talking naturally. Obviously the most important person in our life is who? God, that goes without saying. But here I'm talking natural marriage. In a natural, in a marriage, well for us who believes in God, after God, the second most important person is our spouse. And then challenge your addiction to comfort. This is Lent. What makes you comfortable? Your solitude, your phone, your earbuds, your music, your being quiet, not talking to anyone, not engaging into conflict, never expressing what you want, what you need, not listening to others, being happy that if you have a conflict, you don't see the person with whom you have a conflict, they're away from you and things are good. You're digging your own tomb. Challenge your addiction to comfort. Because by, when you do that, you gain competence. And we'll talk about that more next week. So we talked about the impoverished marriage that comes into these two vari varieties of deadly and shipwrecked marriage. And then what we're going to talk about next week is the conventional and exceptional marriage. When we get to exceptional, we're going to talk specifically about those things that make an exceptional, exceptional couple exceptional. And then hopefully you'll start to kind of tee into this and start to think that way and change your perception of what a relationship is, what it's meant to do, and what it, why it is, why God created it the way he did. So um, I'm going to stop here and then see if there are any questions. Um, do you want to take the questions first? Would you like us to say prayers so that maybe some of you would like to leave early? Can do so. Would you prefer that? Okay, let's close with the prayer first. Okay, so Father, I did the opening prayer. Could you please lead us in the closing prayer? Amen.
Amen. Thank you. So if you need to leave, please be on your way. Otherwise, we will uh, spend a little time taking some questions. I'm going to take a look and see if there are questions coming out of here. Hmm? This is St. Mary. They look great. But... No, not, not me. Thank you, Father. I'm good. I'll, I'll lent, uh, I stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm going to mute myself a little bit, guys, and we'll get back in, um, in about a few minutes. Thank you.
All right. So uh, we have a question from someone online. My question would be, what about narcissists or those who you can't change? It's a great question. I really thank you for asking it. So um, obviously, I am not a psychologist. So I would, I would say in general, uh, don't come at me with um, questions that would require someone who is a professional in the field. But I can take that question from a perspective of uh, the moral behavior that we have to have ourselves, meaning in terms of vices and virtues. And what I would say is that, um, first of all, you recognize a narcissist when uh, uh, you are talking to someone who will not ask you any personal questions. And you get a sense that you are here or present for them, but there is no quid pro quo. And I'm not necessarily talking about going on a date or anything. Even if you have someone who's supposed to be your friend and who behaves like what I call a black hole. You give, you give, you give, you give. There's nothing come back in return. Okay. So in that situation, it is, again, very important to learn to state things. If you're going to sit on it, then you, regardless of what you do with that relationship, you're, sitting, you're, you're setting yourself up for ending up alone. Do you understand that? When you avoid conflict or confrontation, you're setting yourself up for ending up alone. In a situation like this, you must be able to, one, in all humility, express your needs. You know, I really value your friendship. You have such great qualities. You know so much about this or that. You do this or that. You're praising the person as they ought to be, two, when I'm with you, I really would like to share things about myself, but so far I've never found the opportunity, or when I do it, I am not receiving anything back from you. Is there something missing? Am I not hearing you right? Can we talk about it? So being humble, being direct, and being clear and concise. You ought to get out of your comfort zone and do those things. In every situation where you feel uncomfortable, you ought to do those things. In all humility, state your needs clearly, concisely. It is your right. And if you're with a friend, a supposed friend who cannot handle this, that's not friendship. That's abuse. Sorry. Let me see. Am I not? Am I muted or something? No. Okay. Let me just shut this thing off. Hate this thing. Okay. All right. The second thing who we cannot change. Guess what? You can't change anybody. All right? I cannot change you. I cannot save you. 
I cannot make you do anything. So do not try to change someone. It's not your job to change anyone. It's not my job to change anybody. I can't. It is your duty to express your needs. Let me give an example. Suppose you're in a situation where you have, let's say, a sister. And whenever you speak to your sister, she either demeans you or puts you down or says that she's done the same thing better or um, says something, whatever it is, that makes you feel uncomfortable. You can go one of two ways. You can either try to shut her off or respond and can, in, 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 in the same way or tell or accuse her, you do this, you do that, which is not going to end well. Or, or you can take the path of humility. You can truthfully state your needs. I'm your sister. I love you. And I want to have a good relationship with you. I need this. But when I'm with you, these things happen. That's my perception. What is your perception? You're engaging in a meaningful, truthful, and humble conversation. That's the only thing you can do. And then as a result, the other person might want to change. And if they don't, then you have every right to separate themselves from them because they're not going to be able to engage in a meaningful, good relationship with you. Okay, another question. Do the four temperaments affect these various marriage types? How much of the marriage success comes from natural compatibility? I don't know too much about the four temperaments, so I cannot speak to this, but I would say this. How much of the marriage success comes from natural compatibility? I would say that natural compatibility can accelerate things, can get you to a happy marriage a lot faster than a situation where people are not compatible. You're with me? This is what we call love at first sight, right? People can fall in love and there is this natural compatibility and everything flows. That is true. However, over a lifetime of a marriage, right, it is not natural compatibility that will keep the marriage happy. It is the recognition that you need this marital imperative, that you need it for yourself first, and your spouse has to have it for herself, and then together you have to have it, and that you need that this is becoming your priority. Your spouse is your priority, and that has nothing to do with natural compatibility. Because you can be naturally compatible, but you love horseback riding more than you love your spouse. And that would not going to and you know bring you to a good state of happiness and end of marriage. Does that make sense? Okay. Questions? Yes. Um, 
Perfect question. Thank you for asking it. Question is, for those who are online, how do you balance out, when you talk about the materialistic marriage, the need for your family, um, the, 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 the need to make sure you make enough money to take care of your family, right? And the need to be with your, with your wife, right? Okay, great question. In most situations, what I will tell you is this. We're dealing here with morality, yeah? Theology usually has black and white question, answers. Morality is prudential judgment. It depends on every situation. So now, how would you know that? The answer comes from you and your spouse. You understand? If your husband, well, I'm not gonna talk about you, let me talk in general, okay? I don't even know if you're married, so. If a husband is complaining to his wife that she's spending too much time at work, that's an early warning sign something is wrong in a relationship, period. If she chooses not to listen to him, you are in a she is in a materialistic relationship. Simple as that. So it's not numbers, it's not figures, it is more how are how are you and how is your uh, the, the husband and the wife connected together? Is are they growing in love? Are they becoming closer? Are they getting more intimate? The answer is yes to all those questions. They're not in a materialistic relationship. The answer is no, they are. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Okay, so the, the specific question here is that how, great question, how do you uh, engage, how do you create an intimate relationship with someone by avoiding on the one hand talking too much and on the other hand not talking enough? Have I captured your question right? Okay, perfect. It's, it's, it's a great question, right? Please, I'm going to tell you this. If there is a question on your mind right now that you're afraid of asking, I guarantee you 90% of people had that same question on their mind. You understand? So thank you for asking it. Uh, here's the answer. Ask the other person. Am I talking too much? See, there is no clear-cut answer to those things. God did not set up in the sky a manual for relationships that work with everyone. Why? Because he wants us to grow in love. So then, if you are with someone, you want to check with them. Right? Because you can't read their minds. And so you engage in meaningful relationships when you say, hey, honey, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit worried that I'm talking too much. What do you think? Now, if he, on the other hand, is unable to truthfully answer, right? 
you're going to have to help him figure out a way to truthfully answer. If he's afraid of not giving you the right answer, well, that's a deeper problem that you guys need to dig into. Does that make sense? Yeah. In your case, you might be thinking, oh, I'm talking too much. In another case, the guy might be thinking, I'm not talking enough. In some other situation, the woman is saying, I don't know what's wrong with him. I want him to lead. He doesn't. Well, then, sit him down and tell him, honey, you're a great guy. You're a wonderful man. You have all these qualities, and I love you for them. But there's one thing that I'm really looking forward for to, is to see you lead this relationship. For instance, if you're going to call me to ask me to go to a restaurant, I'm expecting you to have arranged the whole thing. It is your right to say that. Now you might say, but, but maybe he arranges the wrong way. Yeah, see, there is a risk of offending, but that's okay. The guy takes the risk. Maybe he invites you to a restaurant where everything is spicy. Even the beer is spicy. It happened to me once. Not in a date. It was just like a group. I went to that party. Everything was spicy. Even the beer. I was ready to kill people. Okay? Well, then, what do you do? He should ask you, how was it? And then you should say, well, the setup was great. It was very romantic. But I don't do spicy food very well. What should he do? Noted. Roger that. Thank you. Next time around, no spicy food. He might do the Italian food. Well, maybe Italian food is not what you really like. Well, then you tell him. Do you see that? That's a virtuous circle where you're engaging in intimacy. But then in return, you ask him, what do you like me to do for you? And maybe he would like you to surprise him with, I don't know, spending two hours at the library he likes to read books. I don't know if my daughter is laughing about that because I would love that. I find that offensive. Bear with me. I'm just going to finish this. Does that make sense? That's what is really key. doesn't matter what bothers you. It's the dynamic that you're creating in that relationship that can change everything. Yes? Okay. Yes, sir. Great question. Um, how do we balance our ambitions and our desire for success and our ability to do something with a relationship? Does that? Okay. You see, the question you have to ask yourself as a guy specifically, am I doing this, whatever it is, because it is going to bring some good or am I doing it to hide my insecurities? That's the fundamental question. In a situation like this, you talk to your spouse or girlfriend and you ask. And if they tell you, this is overbearing, it's taking on everything. I'm not, I, you're, you don't have time for me. Well, that's your answer. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you already know that you already have a passion for something and you're going after it, great. But now is the time to balance it and make it be at the service of the relationship. Your relationship is not one more thing you have in your pocket. Your job, your passion, your work, whatever the case may be, is there to serve the relationship. And then you need to put in, you need to rein it in in order to serve your relationship. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me see, there are a few questions here. Um, an initial statement about trying to resolve difficult relationship. Very helpful. Thank you. Okay. This is not the question. All right. Uh, all right. In one last question. Yes. Oh, no, I'm talking about natural purpose. Okay. Not I want to have money because that is greed. You want to do something that generates income. That's, that's good. I want to have a bakery. I want to uh, be... Um, um, you know, run for, a, be a mayor. You, you want to do something that does good around you. You understand? That would be a purpose of your life. But if you, not you, but if a, a young man is just floating, that's a, that's a disease that is common today because um, society, the society at large is preventing young men from becoming men. That's a problem we have. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to, right? Find something you're passionate about. I remember when I was still at Waterloo and university in my, doing my PhD, guy knocked my door and walked, and I looked, I looked at him and he would be the perfect nerd. And I love nerds because deep down I'm a nerd, okay? And I looked at him, I didn't know him, he said, I'm sorry, but Alex sent me over to uh, because he told me to talk to you so you can give me advice on dating. Uh, I'm looking at him saying, okay, so let's talk. And what I, I told him was, listen, forget dating, find something you're passionate about. You gotta, you're going to be able to do something that, that is an expression of who you are. If you're hoping to date a girl that she's going to save you from who you are, forget it. No one is interested in that. The guy was kind of nerdy because he was trying to put what I was saying like in a procedure so you can write a program or something. That's how it felt. So I was going to very, you know, I have very low hope he's going to do anything. But then six months later, he came back and he really surprised me. He decided to bike from Waterloo, which is in Ontario in Canada, to Vancouver. That's like, uh, I don't know, like 2,000 miles. That's what he spent his summer doing, biking from Waterloo to Vancouver. In the process, he kind of lost weight. He toned up, found confidence in himself. And by the time he came back, he was with a girlfriend. Wasn't surprising. He found purpose in life. He went after it. And girls are attracted to that. Does that make sense? All right. We're going to clo close off now, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. The talks will be on the website.
It's going to take me a little time to put them up there, but they will be. And if you want to know when they will be there, please subscribe to the newsletter because that's how we make the announcements. And hopefully, we'll see you next week. And thank you for coming. All right, you guys, we're closing off. Thank you for joining us.